about there. Last week, we established that the whole Bible was written for the New Testament church, that it was founded on the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. We saw scriptures that indicate the prophecies are written first for fulfillment in the church, second for fulfillment in physical Israel. Then we discussed the prophetic and parabolic symbols for the church and its members as defined by the Bible, such terms as city of God, Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, mother, bride, living stones, temple, building, body, etc., refer to the church and its members. We also saw a few examples of Old Testament references that obviously apply to the church today, such as the failure of the ministry in Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1. Now let's test the ice. Is it safe to walk around the Bible on it? And applying these symbols of the church from the Old Testament prophecies to current conditions in the church, can we jump back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Can we jump from book to book in the Old Testament, chapter to chapter, verse to verse? Will the ice break and we fall in the water if we attempt to do it that way? Or must we keep everything absolutely in the context in which it is found and not deviate from that whatsoever? As a building contractor in Alaska, I observed a phenomenon that most of you down here would not understand, and that is that they have permafrost, ice which never melts underneath the surface. In the summer, in some areas, uh, the sun warms the surface up and four, five, six feet down. Uh, the ice from that winter thaws, but the summer isn't long enough to melt the ice that is further down. And when you're building roads or houses up there, it's very, very hard to get a solid foundation. And very frequently you will see roads that have what we call frost heaves, uh, and it gets so bouncy that you can ruin your car, you can fall off the road, uh, very bouncing. And houses have the same problem. Uh, in some areas, the frost in the winter goes down four feet or even more, especially if you drive over the area, it can drive it down 10 or 12 feet. And if you do not dig the foundation of your house below that frost line, then in springtime, when the temperature changes, the frost begins to heave as the ice contracts and, and expands uh, from winter to summer and summer to winter, and your house walks, they call it. And over a period of time, uh, the floors settle in one direction, another direction, and you feel like you're drunk when you're stone sober walking through the house. And given enough time, many houses simply fall apart because the foundation keeps shifting. It is hard to trust the foundation, in other words. It fails fairly frequently. And those inexperienced in building in Alaska often make ignorant mistakes. They are uneducated, and their foundations are unstable. Therefore, there are lots of lawsuits. Now, let's turn to 2 Peter 3 and ask the question, how much danger is there of resting scriptures out of context and destroying the meaning? Peter addressed this. 2 Peter 3, he's talking about Paul, and he called him our beloved brother in verse 15. And he says in verse 16, As also in all his epistles, Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, 
God did not write them or cause Paul to write them all in very easy form, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, twist, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. Other scriptures, of course, would be the Old Testament, but Peter by this time was considering some of Paul's writings to be on the same par with scripture, and ultimately, of course, they were canonized as scripture. But Peter already recognized the value of them at this point. But those who are unlearned and unstable tend to rest these things. So there is that possibility. Who does this, though? It's the unlearned and the unstable. When we are unlearned and do not understand the principles of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, how he has set it up, the meaning of the holy days, and so forth, so that we understand the order of the resurrections, we don't have a skeleton to hang things on. And without that understanding of the purpose and plan of God, it's so easy to get off in left field somewhere. And many, many religions on this earth who claim to be Christian aren't Christian at all because they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand the framework, the skeleton. They are unlearned and therefore unstable, and they come to the wrong conclusions. While we're back here, let's go to 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private origination. It should be, as opposed to interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God wrote the Bible. God wrote it in a certain fashion, a certain way. And he had very good reasons for writing it the way that he did. He inspired those men to write it exactly as it is written. Now Psalm 12 and verse 6, I won't turn back there and read this to you, and you don't have to turn back, but I'll put it in as a reference. Psalm 12 verse 6 states that Scripture is purified seven times. Every word, every detail was written exactly as God wanted it. It was processed over and over and over again seven times to be sure there were no impurities, that there were no contradictions, that everything fit his plan, his purpose, and his design. There have been some minor translation errors since, but as it was originally conceived and written by the prophets, it was absolutely perfect and solid in every way. Now I say minor translation errors since, because when you consider the whole plan of God and the purpose of man and the resurrections and so on, in comparison to obtaining the message out of the Bible, these are fairly minor and can be answered by going back into original text and so on. And just like this one here where it's in Second uh, Peter 1 where it says private interpretation, many have glommed onto that and says, well, you can't as an individual, interpret the Bible. But they didn't understand that he's talking about the origin of the Bible here, as the context clearly points out, that it came from God in the next verse. So it wasn't a matter of interpretation, but a matter of origin. Now, as the New Testament church was built upon the prophets, along with Christ and the apostles, everything in them somehow impacts the end-time church, as well as physical Israel, whether directly or indirectly. In some way, they have to fit that picture. Why? 
because they are part of the foundation of the New Testament church. And Christ would not put anything in the foundation that did not have meaning for the church erected on that foundation, whether we understand it yet or not. It has to fit. You can't have a bad foundation or bad ingredients in the foundation, nor can it be on a bad area like we have building over ice in Alaska and causing problems as a result of the foundation not being solid. So I think I'm safe in saying that everything back there has impact one way or another on the church because it is in the foundation of the church. Now, can we jump from book to book, back and forth, from old to new? Let's go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. This one was brought up to me as saying that everything has to be taken in context uh, for the following reasons that we'll see. But let's read uh, verse chapter 28, verse 9 to begin with. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and taken from the breast, for precept must be upon precept, upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And someone told me to take it in context, because these people who were seeing things precept upon precept and line upon line were rebellious against God, but that doesn't apply to us. The we can understand everything in its context, and we don't skip around through the Bible to put together a story. Now, is that so? Are we resting Scripture to follow the precept for understanding or the, uh, the formula for understanding that is here in Isaiah 28, 9, and 10. And again down in verse 13. Now let's take the context of Isaiah 28 a little bit first. And beginning in verse 1, he says, Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Now who is this talking about? We touched on the book of Hosea, I think it was last week, showing that Ephraim is also a symbol of the church, and that the mother church there uh, was a harlot, and that the daughters also received some censure from God. And I refer to it as the daughters of Zion, or the splits, the branches of the church that we have today. And I won't further discuss that until we get a little further along in this sermon, and I think it will become very, very clear to you that Ephraim does have something to do with the church. So this chapter, Isaiah 28, does certainly apply to physical Israel and the things that will happen to Israel, but it also applies to the church. Uh, we do have some people that are getting, having wild parties on wine. Wine is a symbol of doctrine, and they have gotten very drunk on wine, on false doctrine, whose glorious beauty, verse 1, is a fading flower. Look at Worldwide Church of God today is not a flower fading there, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, which is a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. Well, God says he will destroy it. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. That tells you the fate of those who get drunk on the wine of false doctrine. Verse 4, the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower. He 
And as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. He, they think they have something, and suddenly it's going to disappear. It's going to be gone. Verse 5. And that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory, and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. So the majority of the church is going to fade, disappear. But God will raise up a residue of his people, and he will be a crown of glory to them. And for a spirit of judgment to him that sits in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. So he will sit in judgment of those who sit in judgment of others, saying that they are unrighteous because they won't go with the new doctrines, which are actually old doctrines of paganism, not new. Verse 7, But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. Paul refers to this way of life as a way of life. The priests and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. <laughs> now that reminds you of Malachi 1, doesn't it, that we read last week? Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Hebrews 5. Paul said, when we should already be weaned from the elementary principles, we're still yet carnal. For precept, and the, the proper translation here is has been, verse 10. For precept has been upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Those who understand are saying the time of refreshing, the time of uniting, the time of God putting the church back together in the return of Christ is very soon. But some don't believe that. They think it's still 20, 30, or 100 years off. And that the time of refreshing isn't near. The word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, line upon line, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And that has happened, hasn't it? People that we thought had the truth years and years ago didn't understand. They picked up a little here and a little bit there, and they lost the overall meaning. Now they've stumbled. They're gone. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. It's talking about those leaders who have stumbled and gone away. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death, we've got this all figured out, we're in agreement, and we know that uh, we're going to be saved. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a trite stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. And we saw last week, that Christ is the head, the cornerstone of the church. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And he's beginning to talk here probably about the two witnesses, because they hold the plummet, and they will judge between those who are obedient and have true doctrine and those who do not, a little later on. So yes, I will agree that the Bible was written in such a way that people could be snared, they could be taken, they could be deceived, and there's a reason for that. If they were not concluded in unbelief, as Romans 11 points out, 
God would have to destroy them. He would have no choice because they understood the truth and rebelled against it. But those who did not really understand it in the first place, perhaps they were tares, perhaps they were like Judas who came in and never did understand, but then led astray. Uh, they are not necessarily lost if they were not truly converted, but they are blinded. Now let's go to Matthew 13. Uh, sister scripture to this one, Matthew 13. And let's begin in, uh, let's see, where am I here? Verse 10. Now, Christ had been talking to uh, the multitudes and so on, and he gave them a parable about how some would be among thorns, others was on good ground, on, others on stony places, and so on. And the disciples came to him in verse 10 and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, the religious line from the Protestants is he spoke in parables and used little earthy agricultural things so that they might understand. It flies right in the face of what he says right here. He answered and said to them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away even that which he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And then he quotes what we just read in Isaiah. Verse 14, And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they, they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their ears, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. They don't want that. They want to live their way. Do it their way. Think their way. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now this is interesting in verse 17. For verily I say to you, or truly, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Well, now those prophets and those righteous men had the Old Testament. But it was written in such a way that even the prophets themselves couldn't understand what this was all about. Daniel was told to shut up his own prophecy, or that why shut up so that he couldn't understand it. But he has a reason in this, all the way through. Now the New Testament church was beginning to understand. Christ was explaining to the disciples what the purpose was and where the power would be. Thenceforth. Now Richard gave a different explanation of, these, of this very parable, or these parables in Matthew 13, than what churchianity and even we had grasped. We couldn't quite grasp the mustard tree. I couldn't for years. I, you know, what's this? says it's big, and yet a mustard tree isn't big. And I'd never really taken time to study it out. It isn't a tree at all. And he showed that it, the worldwide grew into something that God did not intend to begin with. It, it overshot its bounds and went into areas that it doesn't belong in, and it's certainly there today. 
Now we can see that. Somebody out in the world can't understand that because they don't know what worldwide even is. How can they understand that that applies to the church when they don't even recognize the church? See how exclusive the church is in understanding the Bible. It's hard to grasp that God has taken the weak and the base of this world and given us the truth. And we can understand what these prophecies are talking about and these parables, and the world hasn't a clue. What an incredible thing it is for us. I, I really hope we're thankful and don't take for granted the knowledge that we have and let it slip away. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 25. I want to see if you can interpret this scripture. You can give me the meaning of it. Deuteronomy 25. And let's go to verse 4. Well, first of all, the context here is various statutes, various ordinances, various laws that God set forth. And in the midst of these, in verse 4, it says, You shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. What does that mean? I mean, if you're a Bible illiterate, and you're just learning the Bible, you go back to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4, and you read this. What does it mean to you? Well, I suppose if you're in an agricultural land, it would mean exactly what it says. Not to muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Because the ox, in order to keep going round and round and grinding the corn, needs to eat, so don't put a muzzle on him so he can't reach down and get a slobbery mouthful once in a while and chew it as he walks. Which those, I suppose some of them did. But God says the labor is worthy of his hire, is the principle here. <laughs> now, is this for the church? Doesn't sound like it, does it? Let's go to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. We're going to see a principle here in action. 1 Timothy 5. Now, Paul is talking in this chapter about church administration, telling Timothy how to oversee the church, how to be a minister, how to oversee other ministers. And in verse 16 he says, If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them, re let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, so that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. And then in verse 17 he says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now how does he make this decision on New Testament salary administration in the church? Where does he draw it from? Some complete context out of uh, the Old Testament? No, he picks one little verse out of the middle of a bunch of laws and ordinances and applies it to the New Testament church administration. Amazing, isn't it? For the scripture says that you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Is that here a little, there a little? Is that picking something out of context and taking it forward as a principle to be used somewhere else? Yes, it is. Let's go now to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, just in case you think that Paul might have goofed there and uh, said the wrong thing. 
chapter 9 and verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? And here he's talking about money again in the New Testament church, in the context. Verse 10, Or says he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That God did not necessarily write that for physical Israel beyond a certain point. It was a physical law to be kept in their society. But Paul says this was written for our sakes. It even says altogether for our sakes. But the meaning is even greater for the New Testament church than it was for ancient physical Israel. Because it's a spiritual principle that carries through forever. Startling statement. Now let's go to Acts 1. Acts 1. Let's see another example. We're testing the ice here <laughs> to see if you can walk around the Bible uh, on this principle. <clears throat> Acts 1. And go down to verse 20. Acts 1.20. Now here the context is talking about Judas Iscariot, who hung himself. Uh, let's pick it up, uh, verse 17, for he was numbered with us and had obtained party, part of the ministry, and he purchased the field with a reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder, hung there till his guts gushed out. And it was known to all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. Now notice verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So Paul used the Psalms to talk about Judas and said, this applies to Judas. Now let's go back to the Psalms and read them. Psalm 69, 25. Psalm 69, at verse 25. He quotes what Paul had just discussed here. But if you look back and forth through this context, it says nothing about Judas. It says nothing about purchasing a field. It shows nothing here about him betraying Christ. This is a psalm about saving me, O God. A psalm of David, it says in my margin. Something David wrote about himself and his troubles. And all of his the deep mire that he sunk into in verse 2. And how he had become a stranger in verse 8 to his brethren and an alien to my mother's children running from his life from Saul. He had troubles of all kinds. Verse 17. Reproach has broken my heart in verse 20. And I am full of heaviness. They gave me also gall for my meat. Verse 21. And in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And he's talking about his enemies here. Nothing that would show anything about Judas Iscariot. And he talks about his enemies, and in verse 25 he says, Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. Nothing about that at all. And yet in the New Testament, Paul applied it to the New Testament church, applied it to Judas, and said, This fits. Out of context. But the principle applied. And 
The Word of God is a living word, and a principle applied here is a principle applied there, apart from context, because it is a true principle. Let's go to Psalm 109. I won't spend a lot of time here, but that's the other one that uh, Luke was quoting there in Acts 1. Psalm 109 and verse 8. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Well, that happened to Judas. He killed himself, died, another took his office. But that isn't what the context of Psalm 109 is about. Here again, it's a psalm of David, and talking about his adversaries, and how he wants them destroyed, and so on and on and on. doesn't have anything to do with Judas, at least on the surface, or in the context. But taken out, a verse here, a verse there, Luke says, yes, it does apply. Now let's go to Romans 9. Romans 9. This one is amazing. Romans 9, and let's pick it up and examine, first of all, verses 25 through 33. Nine verses here, Romans 9, 25. And I want to show you how Paul took a whole menage of scriptures and put them together. Verse 25, he says, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And he's quoting Hosea 2.23. Well, that context back in Hosea is talking about Hosea marrying the harlot, about his daughters, about ostensibly physical Israel and Ephraim, and what happens to her in the book of Hosea. And yet, Paul applies it to the church to the New Testament church he was writing to in Rome. Now in the context, Paul, out of Hosea, Paul took half of one verse. If you go back and read it in Hosea, he took half of it. And it is out of a millennial prophecy that is interpolated into the story there in Hosea. If you go back and read it, maybe we should, just to show you. I don't want to skip over this and confuse and go too fast, but let's go back to Hosea too. Hosea 2, and I quote, he, he quoted from verse 23, but if you go back a few uh, verses, you will find that he is talking here about a God beginning to bless Israel after she's been uh, destroyed, verse 16, and that day, it shall be at that day, the millennium says the Lord, that you shall call me Ishai, and, I, and no more Bali, or my husband, and then he talks about the peace and, and the good conditions in the millennium. I don't want to read it all for sake of time, but you can take more time if you want to establish that. But Paul took a half a verse out of that millennial prophecy and brought it forward to the people of the church in Rome. Now, verse 26, the very next verse. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Here he quotes Hosea 1 and verse 10. He breaks in the middle of a verse in Hosea and quote, only quotes the last half. He doesn't use the context at all in Hosea to explain what he's talking to the Romans about. He just quotes the last half of a verse. 
And here again we have another millennial setting. And yet it, it's referring to the millennium on a physical level with Israel, and yet he applies it to the church before the millennium even begins. Interesting. Now go to verse 27. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Isaiah 10, 22 through 23. So he's quoting here. He takes the first half of one verse. Now if you go back to Isaiah 10, uh, the context is of the destruction the Assyrian wreaks on Israel and how a remnant of Israel will remain. And yet Paul applies that to the New Testament church. Do we begin to see a pattern here? that we can take these Old Testament prophecies about the destruction of physical Israel and apply them to the destruction of the church today. That these prophecies apply today. And that we can do it with half a verse here, half a verse there, a whole verse somewhere else, taken right out of the context of the Old Testament. Amazing, isn't it? And he doesn't just do it once in a while. Go down to... Uh, Verse 27 now. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Now where he quoted this from is a little bit obscure. And yet it's a verse that has a lot of interest for you and me because we're right here at the end of the work that God is doing on the earth and Paul says it will be cut short. Now where is his authority for that? I think it's interesting that my margin gave me Isaiah 28, verse 22, chapter 10, verse 23. A commentary said he got it from Isaiah 65, 8, 9, 11, and 15. Yet you can go back and read those, and it doesn't say it in so many words. It says that God will finish his work, that he will do these things that he promised he would do, but that there's nothing I could find in those that indicated that it would be short. Now, I did find Proverbs 10.27, where there's a general principle, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Now, that's a proverb. It's a saying about people who are wicked that uh, their lives are liable to be cut short because of the sins that they've committed. But is it a statement that the work, the purpose of God, the 6,000 years will be cut short? Maybe that's a stretch. Now maybe Paul had access to Matthew 24, 22 by this time. Perhaps the Gospels were written where it says, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. So maybe he had heard that quote from Christ. It wouldn't surprise me at all. He had been taught by Christ in the desert and he certainly had had concourse with the apostles and I'm sure that if Christ had said, I'll cut it short, their ears picked up on that and they passed that one along because it's one of those things you like to hear. So maybe that's where he got it. But it's interesting that he mixes Old Testament prophecies in this one chapter together with New Testament sayings to apply to the church. Puts them all together. Wads them up together. All right, now let's go down to uh, verse 29. Here's another, the fifth example he uses in this short passage of nine verses. 
And Paul says in verse 29, Except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like to Gomorrah. And here he's quoting Isaiah 1 and verse 9. Ironically, I hadn't researched this at that point, but I quoted Isaiah 1, 9 to you, I think, uh, in my second sermon in this series, which says, Except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. And I applied it to the church. And perhaps there were those who were skeptical that I could do that. And yet since then, I found that Paul used the exact same verse and applied it to the New Testament church. So I feel good about that one now. Now let's continue. Verse 32. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. Was quoted from apparently Luke 2.34. There's nothing in the Old Testament about it. But he quotes Christ here, who in turn was quoting Isaiah and mixes New Testament instructions with Old Testament instructions in concocting a message to the Romans about the church. Christ's words and Isaiah's words he put together. And we saw that one back in Isaiah 28, where Christ is the foundation stone. So that shows me that Isaiah 28 is referring to today, not just to physical Israel. In fact, let's go on to verse 33 in Romans 9 again. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Here he's quoting Isaiah 8, verse 14. Now if we were to go back to Isaiah 8, we would find the context there speaking of a confederacy or a conspiracy against Israel led by Assyria. Let's go back there and see this one. Uh, I, I'm not turning to all of them for sake of time, but let's go back to Isaiah 8 and just see the context, show you what I'm talking about. Here in verse 9, God throws out a challenge, Associate yourselves, O you people, and I'll break you in pieces, paraphrasing. Verse 10, Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. This is Isaiah writing. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, those who had departed from God, or the pagans around him, either one, I suppose, saying, Say you not a conspiracy. To all them to whom this people shall say a conspiracy. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. Set aside or sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. A lot of people spend great hours of their time talking about the new world order and looking into it and the nation of Islam and all these things that could be the king of the south. They spend many, many hours looking at that. God says, don't worry about it. It's there. It's going to happen. The beast is rising. But don't fear that. Fear God. Let him be your dread. He's the one that can destroy soul and body. These people can only destroy your, your body. Big deal. It's going to die anyway. Verse 14, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ became a snare to the physical Judah. Didn't he? They rejected him. They turned from him. And his true message has become a snare and a gin against the church today. 
because they've rejected the message of Christ, accepted the person of Christ, and therefore are no longer God's people because they are in harlotry to paganism. Pretty plain here that there would be a conspiracy against God's people. Verse 15, And many among them shall stumble and fall. Does that remind you of Daniel, where it says some of those of understanding will fall? That's an end-time prophecy for sure. Sealed up till the end. And be broken and be snared and be taken. That sounds like Isaiah 28. Verse 16, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among thy disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. I won't worry about what the conspiracy is, either in the world, against physical Israel, or in the church, against spiritual Israel, because both are happening. The church is a little ahead of the world. The conspiracy here has already reached great height, and great destruction has been done in the church. And this physical conspiracy in the world is going to happen to the physical people of Israel pretty soon. But Paul brought this forward in Romans to talk about the church. It's not just the conspiracy of the New World Order or the beast or however the final formation is, but it's a conspiracy within the church. And it's about the Assyrian. So therefore, those who led the <coughs> conspiracy in the church can be symbolized by the Assyrian, as well as the Egyptian and the Babylonian. It all comes forward to the church. So seven times in nine verses, Paul pulls one verse, or a half a verse, out of its context, and wads it together with other pieces of verses to make his point to the Roman church. And that isn't all. Now, I'll just go through these. You can follow along if you want to. So I'll quote the verse. In this same Romans 9, he quotes in verse 4, Exodus 4.22, 1 Samuel 4.21, and Genesis 7.22. And he only takes a couple of words from each of those passages. He only takes a couple of words and brings them forward takes several chapters, there are several verses, a couple of words out of them, brings them forward and puts them in one verse in his letter to the Romans. Now if that's not here a little, there a little line upon line and even word upon word, Paul takes out. Verse 7, he quotes Genesis 21-12. And out of Genesis 21-12, he only takes a short phrase. Now you can follow along in Romans if you want, as I say this, because you can pick this out. Verse 9. Uh, let's see, what does he say there? He says, For this is the word of promise, At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Here he quotes Genesis 18.10, part of it. Takes it right out of its context and brings it up here. Verse 10. What does he say here? Uh, when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, he takes that from Genesis 25, 21. Then verse 12, uh, he quotes that from Genesis 25, 23. I won't go back and read these. You can follow along there and read the King James as we go. Verse 13, here he quotes from Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3 about Esau. Then you go to verse 15. Here he quotes Exodus 33, 19. Then you go to verse 17. Here he quotes 
Exodus 9, verse 16. important that you necessarily write all these down. I'm just trying to illustrate a point here. You can if you want, or you can go back and look them up in your own Bible and prove it yourself. But verse 20, he makes two quotes here from Isaiah 29, 16 and Isaiah 45, 9. And in verse 21, he refers to a totally different prophet, Jeremiah. And he quotes Jeremiah 18, 6. So here are about Ten more words, phrases, and verses lifted out of their original context and again melded together to prove Paul's point. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. If you understand, I reiterate, the plan and the purpose of God, you can fit many scriptures together to pick up the meaning because you already understand the skeleton they fit on. If you don't understand that, then these would just be isolated verses that would mean nothing to you. But Paul put it in such a way that they could understand what he was saying. Now, what was Paul's point in all this in Romans 9? What is Paul saying to these Romans? If you go back, the first chapters of Romans show that being Greek or Jew has no great advantage over the other except that the Jews were given the oracles or the utterances of God, which should have been a great advantage, but they rejected those utterances of Christ and the utterances of God. Now the book of Romans is to show that being a Jew of the flesh has no spiritual meaning. Paul goes to great pain to show in chapter 6 through 8 that a real spiritual Jew is an individual converted from carnal thinking be he physically Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter. Later in the book, he shows how the Gentiles were grafted in. And once grafted or converted, are just as much spiritual Israel as one born into Israel. And he says the circumcision, that is, physical birth into Israel and physically circumcised as a result of being born there, is nothing. It means nothing in the New Testament era. He goes to Greetings, pain, to explain this in chapters 9 through 11. If you read the whole thing, that's his whole point. And he draws scriptures from here, there, and everywhere in the Old Testament to prove it. Chapter 10, verse 11 of Romans. He says, For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. Now to the Jews, this was akin to blasphemy. But Paul is making a point of explaining it. Then he quotes several places in Isaiah, again, to show the spiritual meaning of all this. I won't take the time to go into it, I think you see the point. All the way through here, Paul uses Isaiah to explain spiritual meaning to these physical Israelites and Gentiles who happen to be in the crowd as well. Chapter 11, verse 1 
I say then, has God cast away his people, speaking of physical Israel? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. No, he hasn't cast away physical Israelite. This isn't replacement theology we're talking about here, brethren, that God has replaced Israel with the church. What we're teaching is that the church is the first fruits, and the rest of Israel is, conclu is concluded in unbelief, so they can be saved later on. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Physical Israel was born first. They had an opportunity with a covenant first. They rejected it. They played the harlot. They were rejected. And they will not have a chance at salvation until the great white throne judgment, or in the millennium if they survive the end of the age. Chapter 11, verse 25, pretty much says that. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. What did their conceits have to do with? Being the chosen people. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The Bible was written here a little, there a little, so they could be snared and taken and deceived. Otherwise, had they really understood what they were doing, he would have had to destroy them. What did Christ say? Forgive them, Father, they know not what they're doing. If they really understood what they were doing, killing the Savior, he would have no choice but to destroy them. Verse 32 of this same chapter of Romans 11. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. When? Great white throne judgment, primarily. Ezekiel 37. Chapter 11, verse 4. 11.4. But what says the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He brings 1 Kings 19.18 out of context. You remember that is the story where Elijah said, I'm the only one, Lord. He says, I ah, don't kid yourself, Elijah. There's 7,000 more I know of who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Now that was Old Testament physical Israelites. And yet Paul said that God was calling a remnant of spiritual Israelites out of Israel, physical Israel, at the time the book of Romans was written in the New Testament church. And he uses the 7,000 number. That's interesting, isn't it? Go back to the first sermon in this series, and we talked about how only a few thousand, probably, were in the early New Testament church. I don't know how many thousands, but it talked about 3,000 the first day, and finally 5,000, and it never got big. And they met in homes, not in great huge cathedrals. So it never got really big. And maybe only about 7,000 was called out of that particular era. I don't know, but Paul applies it to the church. And here we are right at the end, and we see another great apostasy. And sometimes we think, well, you know, if you take 150,000, take out the tares, take out the children and dogs, and first thing you know, you're getting down to a small number, and God says that he will work with a remnant or a residue. And there might only be 7,000. I don't know. I don't have the insight perhaps Paul did. It's speculative. But when you limit the first resurrection to 144,000, which the Scripture clearly does, 
But you can't have too many from each era. And you don't have to do a great big end-time work of trying to convert people because God called enough through Herbert Armstrong to finish the deal. Except for maybe a few called in at the 11th hour. Verse 5 shows the application here that Paul made of, of Elijah and the 7,000 to the New Testament church. Now back up to verse 6 uh, of uh, chapter 11 here. So I, I guess I want... What do I want? Chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect... For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And if you read the context here, all the way, chapter 9 through 11, you will see that Paul is explaining that there is a difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel, the church. And the spiritual Israel takes the nod as the leader, and they have opportunity at salvation, whereas physical Israel doesn't until later on. There is an order of the resurrections. So the, the church does not replace Israel, it's just the church has first crack at salvation. Physical Israel has it later on. The church, or the first fruits, will have a double portion of reward. There's your Old Testament principle to bring forth. Wasn't the firstborn son supposed to get double the inheritance of the rest of the children? Yes. So God is going to make the firstborn, the first fruits, have a higher reward, a greater blessing, as a bride of Christ, as also the mother to teach the children in the, the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Kings and priests over them. So they will not have that opportunity to lend. Now can I bring that forward from the Old Testament, that principle about the firstborn child having a greater reward? That's a no-brainer. That should be so simple. That it's a very clear principle in the Old Testament. And some people argued over it back then because there were jealousies as to who would be the firstborn and who wouldn't. And the selling of the birthright by Esau and so on. It was very plain in there. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That principle is still just as good today as it was then. And in fact, it has greater meaning today because it has to do with eternal reward, not just so many camels and cows. The bigger deal. So the first fruits have the very highest reward. So we can be included with him, with Christ, who of course has he is the first of the first fruits and has the very highest reward. And we, as first fruits just behind him, have the next highest reward. Now all of physical Israel will have opportunity to become part of spiritual Israel ultimately and be part of the kingdom, but not until later. 1 Corinthians 15.29, the order of resurrections and a difference in reward. Somebody told me recently that after the great white throne judgment, everybody's going to be exactly the same. There won't be any office, there won't be any, any higher than anybody else. Well, I'll just refer you to the parable of the talents and the pounds and many other things in the Bible. We don't have time to go in, that's a different subject, but I think it's very clear here that the firstborn, the firstfruits, have a greater reward. Now, we must hasten on. I want to give you a few more examples. <clears throat> Instead of Paul, let's go to Peter. 
Now in Acts 2, excuse me, yeah, in Acts 2, Peter saw at, on the day of Pentecost there, which we rehearsed last Pentecost, all kinds of incredible miracles beginning to occur. Tongues of fire and so on. Now what came to Peter's mind? He was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. Did he say, well, that's just the end of the age and that just has to do with physical Israel? No. He referred to Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And he took a text out of prophecy, normally applied to physical Israel, applied it directly to the miracles beginning the New Testament church. Now we can look back and see that that wasn't the final fulfillment, as Peter thought. It's very clear in the scriptures that Peter and Paul and those thought Christ would return in their lifetime. And Peter thought, this is it. This is the end. This is Joel too. And he wasn't totally wrong because it was a beginning of that prophecy. And those miracles died out shortly thereafter where his, Peter, where his uh, shadow passing didn't heal people. Now in one sense, Peter was in the end time. If you count a day as a thousand years, Peter was at the beginning of the fifth day after four thousand years. So it was the end time. And the beginning of the New Testament church, of course, carries over to today when the sixth day is almost over and what Peter applied is going to intensify greatly in the same New Testament church, not in the physical nations of Israel. God isn't going to give great spiritual power to the Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, and the Evangelicals of this age. Well, now he's going to give it to... No, he won't. Satan will give it to the Catholics or whoever else is involved. But God is going to give it to his witnesses, to his church, not to the world. And Peter recognized that. Christ even told the disciples that they would do greater things than did he. Well, what does he say about the two witnesses? Zechariah 4 says that the mountains will become a plain before Zerubbabel. Physical Israel has nothing to do with the two witnesses other than be warned by them. But the Old Testament prophecies are full of references to them, including Zechariah 3 and 4 and Haggai and many other places. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 9. 1 Peter 2, let's go back there. Oh, I'm in 2 Peter. That didn't look right. 1 Peter 2. He's talking here to us to lay aside malice and guile and hypocrisy and envying as newborn babes, speaking to the church, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Don't get away from the basic understanding of the plan and purpose of God that we learned under Herbert Armstrong. You also, verse 5, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then he quotes that he would lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and shows that we are part of that foundation. We are the lively stones to build the temple with. And how Christ became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in verse 8. Even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. See, he, he concluded them un, in unbelief, as we read in, in uh, Romans 11.32 and in Isaiah 28. They were intended to remain in darkness spiritually until later on, but not us, verse 9. 
You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a particular people that should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's talking to the church here. Who did Paul address in his epistles? The scattered church of the ten nations of Israel. He wasn't talking to physical Israelites. They're concluded in unbelief. He's talking to the church here. He quotes from Isaiah 28:16 to prove the New Testament church is the people or nation God looks to now, not physical Israel. He quotes that in verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Now the physical Israel had been a people. But he's referring to something else here. He's referring to the church and saying, you are now that people. Quoted one verse out of Isaiah 28:16. Same context that we have been reading at the beginning of this sermon. Moved it forward to the New Testament church, just like Christ did with the disciples in Matthew 13. Now, are we beginning to see a trend here? These men constantly applied the Old Testament prophecies to the church, randomly. If you can pick out this many parts of verses and single verses and put them all together to form a picture of the church, can you not honestly go back and read them in context and use the same analogies to all the prophecies? I mean, if they could just pick a little bit out of that prophecy and say this applies to the church, can't you go back and apply that whole chapter that verse came out of to the church? Well, I should think so. Remember, the prophecies are a part of the foundation of the New Testament church, along with the apostles and Christ. They all apply in some way. We're still learning how they apply. And as we move closer to the end, more and more of them can be seen to apply. Fifteen years ago, hardly any seemed to fit the church in a full prophetic way. Since the scattering, they're all beginning to take shape, including what is coming next. How many memory verses, brethren, over the years in the church do we have that we have applied to so many different things? You can sit in church for six months, and you might hear one verse used by different ministers to prove a different point about 15 different subjects because it is living and it applies so many different ways. Now let's, let's see that. The church ministry is already being devastated. On the other hand, churchianity will be destroyed very shortly. The people of the church already scattered and being scattered around the world. Physical Israel, we understand from the prophecies, will shortly be put to famine, pestilence, the sword, and scattered in captivity around the world. See how it applies to both? The church will soon be gathered together one by one. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. The two witnesses will put them together in the final temple. Talks about that in Haggai, about how it will be built. Zerubbabel, the leader of the two, is a type of Christ doing the regathering. A remnant will be gathered. We read that in Paul referring to the church. The witnesses will feed all of them during the tribulation, Zechariah 4. And on the other side of the coin, Israel will be regathered by Christ himself, one by one, where they've been scattered all over the world in the tribulation. In the same light, judgment is now. 
on the spiritual house of Israel, 1 Peter 4.17. Your day of judgment and mine is right now. But the rest of physical Israel is concluded in unbelief, and judgment will be on them during the millennium and the great white throne judgment, Ezekiel 37. The first fruits, fruits of spiritual Israel will be the bride of Christ, and number exactly 144,000. So the church is exclusive even in physical Israel, combined with some Gentiles. Physical Israel will be taught to become spiritual Israelites by the bride, by the kings and priests, the mother, the older brothers, in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. <laughs> Again, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who came last in history will be placed ahead of those who came first in history. This is going to be important to remember when we finally get to the innumerable multitude. Now, the reason is that if the Bible were written in a crystal clear manner, deception would not have been possible, and God would have to destroy rebellious man. God could have written the Bible like a novel. He could have had one thing right after another in a logical story sequence, and it could have been very crystal clear. He is capable of that, believe me. <laughs> this way they could be deceived and shown mercy. Now Christ, Paul, Peter, Luke, and all the others knew the Bible was written this way and the reason for it. So they picked the truth out here a little, there a little, and pieced the puzzle together simply because that's the style God used to write the Bible. All the scriptures to prove any given doctrine are not found in a complete text, a complete context. <laughs> Go through and prove to me all the doctrine of faith in context without skipping around in the Bible. Prove the nature of man. Prove the nature of God. Prove the Trinity to be untrue. Prove any doctrine. And you're going to have to go all over the Bible to put scriptures together to prove it. You can't just take those things in a particular context and do it. God does not write like a man. doesn't write like a novelist. It's layered like an onion. You peel a little off, and you peel a little off, and the meanings are endless. They're deep. Man can't write deeply the way God did, nor can man write where everything in a book that size completely ties in and agrees with everything else. And on all kinds of different levels. You have to search it out like fine gold. Now, Herbert Armstrong studied and studied and studied to piece it together. He finally saw you should keep the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and then he kept the Holy Days for years before he began to understand the spiritual meaning of them, to apply them to the New Testament church. That was the principle that he used. It was here a little, there a little. Studied through the Bible till he finally got it together. That's the way God taught Herbert Armstrong. And now, the whole foundation of doctrine is here for us. And it is solid. And once we understand it, we can walk all the way through the Bible, skipping here and there, and not twist things out of context if we're honest and sincere and true in our application of these things to the plan of God. There just aren't any contradictions if they're fit together and properly understood. 
So Paul and Peter knew all the Old Testament prophecies applied to the church, so they had no problem gathering a verse here and a verse there and putting it together, because they knew it all applied. And they weren't resting the prophecies to do it, even though they, well, we saw that one in Romans 9, where there were, what, close to 20 that he put together there, bits and pieces. Man, including physical Judah and Israel today, cannot understand the scriptures. Billions of people cannot understand the scriptures. Revelation 12:9, the whole world is deceived. 1 John 5:19, where he says that they all that the world lies in wickedness. They do not understand, can't. But now let's go quickly to John <coughs> 14, and we'll wrap this up here pretty quickly. John 14, <coughs> and verses 15 to 26, I don't have time to read it all, but Christ talks here about how he is the vine, and we're the branches, and so on and so forth. And he tells us, let's see if I will pick out the one I want. But when the Comforter, verse 26, is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me, of me, and you shall also bear witness, because you have been with, with me from the beginning. The one I wanted here, though, was where he said that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things. My eye doesn't... Oh, I'm in fifth. Okay, I'm in the wrong chapter, see? Now, you can't do it that way. <laughs> you, you should turn where you're reading. Okay, no wonder I was having trouble there. Verse 26, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things. So he's talking to his apostles to the church. He says the Holy Spirit is going to teach you those, these things. But the problem is, with the world, they don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't think they have the Holy Ghost, but they don't have it. Maybe they have the unholy Ghost, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And I can prove that to you. Acts 5.32 he gives his spirit to them that whole thing. And they say there is no obedience. The law is done away. Therefore, the Bible says they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they can't learn the truth. 1 Corinthians 2. Let me see if I can possibly turn to the one I want this time. 1 Corinthians 2. And let's begin in verse 6. How be it we the church, Paul, the true ministry, speak wisdom among them that are mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. It's a mystery to the world. And it, to us, to some degree, it's still a mystery, because we, we, have, we see through a glass darkly even yet. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. That pretty well says it, doesn't it? For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Man just cannot understand it. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of or, or what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Let's go down to verse 14. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
One of my neighbors the other day, I was walking the dog, says, well, did you have a good Christmas? I said, I made it through it. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me kind of funny. I, I couldn't explain to him that it's pagan, but I wasn't going to say, yes, I hope you had a merry one. Couldn't do that. He's concluded in unbelief. Now let's go down just a little more in chapter 3, because there's a big lesson here for us. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Corinthians were having troubles. How? Even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hereto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal. Now how was that carnality evidenced? For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Now here's the problem. We can think we have great understanding of prophecy or great understanding of uh, this doctrine or that or great understanding of something else. But we are like spiritual children if we can't put aside our intellectual vanity and get along with each other. If we can't love one another. I hope I didn't cut myself off when I gesticulated wildly against the phone there. They were walking as men, not as gods. Now how incredibly exclusive spiritual Israel is. The true, called out, obedient church is the only group of people on earth who have the Holy Spirit of God and can understand His words. That puts us in pretty small company. What a blessing we share. Once we begin applying the whole Bible directly to the church, we begin to understand great chunks of the Bible in the light of today's events that were a mystery 15 years ago. We're beginning to see not just here a little, there a little, but we're beginning to understand whole sections of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Romans, and so on and so forth. Now let's conclude this in Romans 12. Because after he shows that man of himself is carnal in the book of Romans, and that no one has any advantage unless he is repentant, whether you be Jew or whether you be Gentile, he exhorts them thusly. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. I'll conclude there, and we'll have the closing hymn and the closing prayer from Charlotte.